This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. We're going to start out by quick introductions about who we are, so you guys know where we're coming from and, and our backgrounds. Talk a bit about, um, about traditional programs and what the concern might be around that. Um, and then really what you can do to actually overcome some of the challenges that are coming that are uh, coming and actually are here. Uh, move a little bit into uh, some findings around a contact strategy to help improve your admissions team uh, performance. And then go into a really cool tool that Enrollment Resources has called Lost Revenue Finder. And then we'll end with some Q&A. So quickly, I'll just talk a bit about Velocify so you guys understand where we're coming from. Less so for advertisement, more so for you understand what the, um, the tools that we offer and where the data comes from in the study we're presenting a little later on. Um, Velocify is a software company that specializes in the, in the beginning of the admissions funnel. Um, and we have a ton of clients and a ton of inquiries in our software because we store it centrally since we're software as a service. It allows us to anonymize the data and do best practices research around it. Um, so later on, you'll see some data points. It's not from us guessing. It's not from us doing surveys. It's, us from, it's, uh, it's from us looking at tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of inquiries to determine best practices patterns. Greg, Shane, over to you. Go ahead, Shane. Uh, sure. So we um, are uh, friends with um, Velocify and with Martin. And one of the main reasons, aside from them being very nice people, is, is the fantastic amount of insight data that comes out of them. So while they have the benefit of having lots of records and, and uh, empirical data to pull on, we tend to exist around uh, best practices and execution and tactics on how to, how to better um, structure your admissions team or run your marketing in order to get a better um, business result. And so we uh, focus on innovation and factually based enrollment management best practices. And within that, we um, run a lot of marketing campaigns, and we do a lot of work with admissions teams to improve their performance and uh, greatly value our relationship with Philosophy. Yeah, actually, I was remiss. I should also mention that we one of the reasons we're, that enrollment resources, enrollment resources is our favorite partner is because not only are they seeking the truth, so they'll tell you um, the truth even if it hurts, but they also are experts at the qualitative reasons of why the quantitative findings we have. So we will say, this is the pattern, this is what you should be doing according to the data, but they're the ones who say, well, this is why, and they're best at actually applying the data to your practices. Now the tire pumping is over. <laughs> um, let's talk about a bit about um, why people should be concerned. Um, Greg, I'll let you take the start of that. That sounds like a fine idea. Um, folks, there, there's, uh, we're all ex experiencing um, transitions in terms of higher education, and um, so most of you understand uh, what's going on in terms of transition uh, in the industry, but I'm going to just give a quick overview so it, it gives the balance of this uh, webinar bit of context. So first of all, um, regulations are tightening, um, particularly with the proprietary schools in terms of student loan funding. And really, um, this, the, the funders, the government, really are not concerned so much about the quality of the education or whether the students are happy or not. They really are just care, care about managing their loan portfolio and the, the loan bubble. And um, so there are all kinds of lawsuits and regulations that are happening. And so not-for-profit have, have uh, kind of been immune to that, except recently. Now they are being included in this uh, funding process. And in addition, they uh, ha are now having their block funding tied to what's called the Higher Education Outcomes Program. There are 33 outcomes that the government have identified um, to improve school uh, accountability. And there are, I think, two-thirds of the states in the US now are actively engaged in having their 
mostly community and state colleges um, adhere to these outcomes, which is uh, creating a whole uh, culture of accountability starting to um, take hold in the not-for-profit side, which is interesting. Um, and this is all coming about in part because federal and state funds are shrinking as government looks for places to save money. So uh, proprietary schools don't receive funding from uh, government sources. Um, however, through the recession, um, half, half of the states within the, the union actually significantly shrunk funding um, to community colleges and, and state, um, state colleges. And it significantly cramped uh, the operations of these, these entities. The other piece that's um, um, big is there, there's a demographic shift. Um, schools have created physical plants to service population density pools that are basically the children of the baby boomers. So a quick 30-second summary on demographics. The boomers are uh, are a huge glacier, a uh, glacial population, and what happened with the boomers, um, the economy follows. And so behind the boomers, the people who are basically uh, 35 to 50 years old, they are known as Generation X, and it's, it's about two-thirds the size of the baby boomers. The children of the baby uh, of the baby boomers are in the range of 20 to 35 years old in broad terms, and it's a huge uh, group, not quite as big as the baby boomers. But then there are the millennials, and they are uh, basically five to to 20 years old, and they are the children of the Gen X people, and these are. Um, uh, the, the, the Generation X guys have had their kids later in life. They've had fewer children. And so this group, it's a tiny little population group, yet the, the schools have not adopted as these 18, 20-year-olds, these teenagers are starting to enter into the market to go to school. So in summary, you have these huge physical plants and you have these tiny populations um, to service those plants in terms of market. The last piece is that there's a real sea change around technology, and that's taking hold. But we're going to touch on that a little bit later. Shane, any insights on, on these, um, uh, these what's going on here? No, I think they're good. I think the, the thing that you know, people refuse to acknowledge sometimes is that they, they assume that because they want it, there's a market for it. Right? It's just like, because I have this school and I have this, this physical capacity that, that all problems can be solved through marketing, better marketing and better admissions practices, and the reality is it can't. Right? There's, there's ultimately, there's a finite amount of people that you can enroll one way or the other, and there, there are conditions outside of your control that influence that, and this is a good summary of some of those. Great, so, great, guys. We're, we're talking, Martin, about um, encouraging people to, if they're living in a diluted uh, state of being, to snap out of it. <laughs> wake up, wake up. Hey, I also want to tell the audience members, if you guys have any questions, we'll be answering them at the end. Uh, in the upper right corner, you should be seeing a little go-to-webinar box. Uh, open it up. Type your questions in there. If you can, make reference to the page that you were uh, answering the question, as their question refers to, and we'll get back to you guys at the end. So that said, let's move into possible solutions to these problems. Okay, I'll, I'll give an initial summary on that and then invite you guys to speak to it. So uh, what schools can do to, to survive? Well, you can evaluate new ways in which to market. But really, that is a tactical, um, as Shane alluded to, it's a tactical um, process. You're only, you can market, your marketing techniques are only as strong as your sales techniques, and your sales techniques are only as strong as your product. Um, you can either um, adjust for the smaller pool of incoming students that schools traditionally market to, or look for different pools of students. Many are going overseas. Um, many are looking for uh, career changer marketing strategies. Uh, the other piece is to change your admissions process. 
And what's happened is due to these stressors, um, either there's benign neglect in terms of not-for-profit or overselling in terms of proprietary schools. And perhaps um, it's, uh, you cannot manipulate or grind people into coming to your school. It's really, a, sometimes, like Shane mentioned the other day, that you have a $20 million entity. You know, sometimes it's just fine to have a $15 million entity and have it functional instead of trying to create all this stress and dysfunction and toxicity in getting to a goal that is impossible to reach. And often these goals are created by um, senior management who have poorly thought through any kind of strategic analysis to the viability of what they're going to impose on the people below them in the, in the hierarchy. So, um, so really, I guess, Jane, what we have spoken about lately at, at conferences when we've given talks is um, the commitment to world-class offerings. And when you have a world-class offering, the marketing works, the placement works, the admissions works, everything works, oddly enough. When you have a fantastic functioning car, everything works well. So Shane, you want to expand on that? Yeah, well, I'm curious. So what, what constitutes a good offering, right? So is the quality of education? Is that you have really good teachers or, or uh, faculty? Is it that you have a nice cafeteria? Is it that, uh, I don't know, you offer spin classes at the student gym? Like what, what constitutes a good product? It's perception. Well, it, it is perception. Um, and it really depends on where you're coming from. If you are a, um, a gilded uh, child that has a, a, a huge family trust, you can go pursue that doctorate in philosophy. Uh, however, if you come from working class families uh, or middle class families, there is an implied perception that, you know, go make a life for yourself and feed your family. And um, if that is the, the primary market in that bell curve, uh, I, would, I would argue that the, the outcome is to have a good job that you can actually have some scalability and you, you can improve the quality of your life. Yet, it, if, if I'm correct in that notion, it's amazing to me, given the research that we do, the mystery shopping and whatnot, how little that many schools really care about that is like they don't they view okay I've done my education with the student bam we're done and and you're off good luck and whereas I would argue no you've just begun that your obligation is to work with that student to transition them out in the world maybe I'm being too practical I don't know well, I think that's you know I think this is one of the like the premise of this talk is partly what what can the not-for-profits and the public sector learn from the private sector, right? Like that's one of the underpinnings. And one of the things that, or, or maybe the, the reason that the private sector has been able to make hay, right, despite some uh, barriers, I think is fundamentally two reasons. They're willing to work with non-traditional students that are not as easy to work with, right? So they they actually have faculty that are and business systems built to like really support somebody who's maybe not going to be an easy student to deal with. One, James, Two, let me just jump in there. Really, yeah. what you're saying there is um, is that if the community colleges are have the the 200 people in the lecture hall and they they have the kind of tired, um, weary approach to education. And they're not going the extra mile. And so people with ADD or people with who have different learning styles are not able to learn in that kind of limited lecture hall style approach. Really, I would argue that the proprietary schools are simply seizing on flaws in the not-for-profit education delivery model, and that I would argue that um, the not-for-profit schools, many of them are simply nailing it in. They have mediocre offerings, and the proprietary schools are seizing upon that and giving people something that's more 
connected to what they need. Hey, yes, guys, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got one more point though. I know, I know, we're on a, we're on our um, you know platitudes here, but here's the other point just to get to. So there's two things: working with people that aren't the easiest to work with, and B, being accountable to the really the major outcome that most people want when they go back to school, which is a job, right? Grad schools and, P and, and doctoral programs are absolutely career programs. It's what they are. Somebody gets a master's degree because they either want a different job or they want to get a get a um, a promotion within their current job, right? Or a higher pay. It's the, so the the kind of like postgraduate programs are have always been career, career school programs. They're essentially career school departments. Now I don't think they perceive themselves as that, but they that's what they are. And so if they adopted more of the practices of of uh, First school around employment outcomes and like getting people more employable, it would sure set them apart and it would differentiate them and give them a better product to sell. I well, agreed. I, I think that another way to look at that is that it's kind of that second bullet point that Greg was talking about, which is if the if the pool of, of people who are sixteen to eighteen looking to go to college is shrinking, which I think we all agree it is, then look for their Places where students exist, and those are adult continuing ed, con uh, you know, uh, completion degrees, online possibly, and that is really where the the uh, private sector schools have excelled. So, if you're a traditional school and want to keep your plant your your seats filled and your um, admissions your alumni uh, body large, then find to go where the students are, and the students are older. So, start reaching out to those people. They they exist and they're looking for an education or the private sector schools wouldn't exist. But but Martin, that requires um, a school to be accountable um, for performance and it requires a, a school to actually um, be market driven. And what we we see with many of the not-for-profits is they're built on a bureaucratic business model um, which really is, creates tremendous impediment to taking that approach. I mean, your point is really excellent. However, the, the way a lot of these not-for-profits are built, it, it would be impossible for them to do so. That, that's a, an interesting challenge. So let's talk a bit about that and what they can do. Uh, that's a great segue, actually, to what we're talking about next, uh, about lean management, right? Um, the bottom line is, if you're going to be reaching out, if you're going to be changing your practice and you're going to be doing things that make a difference in keeping your school afloat as the traditional undergraduate students disappear and you go into new programs, you have to change your practice around admissions. And we'll talk about some of the details in the next couple of pages, but it's important to know that there, the admissions process reaching out to adults is very different than the admissions process when you're reaching out to a 16-year-old kid for two years to get them to go to your school. And you're going to have to change some of your practices. So you guys want to address these slides? Yeah, Greg, go for it. Okay. So lean management is is uh, a process that other um, industries use heavily. People like Apple, Toyota, uh, General Electric, um, Siemens in Germany. These guys all use lean management, which is basically uh, to um, analyze and open up choke points um, that get in the way of moving things through in a timely manner. Now, the way to open up those choke points is to um, use a, basically a process of trial and error to safely find a way to open the choke point without damaging your business. And in marketing, that's known as AB or split run testing is what Shane and I call it. Um, you need to go and when you're doing your testing, you need to anchor that with, a, for lack of better terms, a repository um, that is very easy to work with and fluid in terms of gathering information and reporting back to you so you can see how your tests work. Now, Velocify is a, an excellent, excellent example of that. And um, so let's go and, and, and look at a couple of these tests. So we want to respond quickly to inquiries. What we've so, learned, go ahead. Th so we did, Velocify mostly serves 
um, uh, companies that are, and schools that are like the people on the phone here. Uh, we also, but in part of our research, we said, well, what do the top companies do as far as response? Because, hey, they've got to respond. And it turns out most companies, the Fortune 100 in this case, in a study we did, turns out they're not very quick at response. So we filled out a form, an, an inquire, you know, ask a question, contact me form on the Fortune 100 sites, all 100 of them, and most of them took an awful long time to get back to us. So you can see an, a, a vast majority took hours, if not days, in some cases weeks, to get back to us. So you're not alone. What we actually found, though, is if you do get a hold of people, and again, this is mostly we're serving the adult community, if you do get a hold of people quicker, you're more likely to enroll them, and here's why. If you look at the, if, if you're having a conversation with people about um, going to school, it is not a three-minute conversation. It's what, Greg, Shane, a half hour, 20 minutes, hour? Yeah, it could Maybe. be. Yeah, yeah. It could be. Um, 50, the optimization of a phone call to enrollment is 15 minutes. That's best practice. So if it's 15 minutes to get someone interested enough to continue the conversation at a time or come to your school to, to do a tour, then you can imagine if somebody fills out a form on your school site, they're most likely filling out a, school, a form on another school site. Majority, actually, the average is two and a half forms per person. So if they're filling out those two forms, two other forms, three forms total, you don't want to be the third one trying to have that 15-minute or longer conversation because at a certain point, they're going to be sick of having the conversations. So what we found is if you look at that horizontal line across the bottom, that's our average client's enrollment rate. If you contact people in under a minute, and some of you think that's incomprehensibly fast, but with our technology and other technologies, we're not the only ones doing this. With other technologies out there that can assist you with that, it's possible. If you contact people under a minute, you're almost five times more likely to enroll them because you're the first one having that conversation. And more importantly, they just click submit on the form. They want to, to discuss or they want to think about going to school at that moment. You call them back in an hour, not only are you going to be the last one to call them, but they may be in the middle of something else in their life, right? Yeah, or another school called them. Uh, or the seeds of doubt have taken hold, or, you know, yeah, got a call from the principal's office and their kid's in trouble, or who knows, right? Like, a lot of things can happen in an hour that disrupt the focus of an adult. Well, the interesting thing about this uh, from a, the other point perspective is that the, um, if you look at some of the recent maps around how people purchase education, it, it's really chaotic, and looking at many, many websites and directories and what have you, and in their researching process, and Yelp and Facebook and LinkedIn and what have you. And so um, the thing about all this is it's asynchronous. And the moment that you can kind of break that pattern of asynchronous research with a, a synchronous exchange, a conversation, uh, what happens is people naturally will gravitate to a higher quality exchange with a human being, and they tend to leave behind most of that synchronous research behind. So by extension, if you have basically 12 competitors that have the person's looking at 12 different websites, um, by moving the person to a high quality exchange on the phone, you eliminate nine of them, which then by extension um, significantly improves your conversion rates. Mm -hmm. Great point. Mark, at the beginning of this, you said the sort of, you know, Velocify is the what, and we can give some insight into the why. I think this is a good example of that. So we know empirically that phoning people quickly creates more enrollments, right? That's, that is a factual statement, and you've got a nice slide here that shows it. It's been proven a number of times. Like, it is not really an undisputable fact at this point. So the question is why? And, and specifically, why don't people do it, and why does it work? People don't do it because the staff uh, don't want to come off as salesmen, or we don't want to come off as aggressive, we want to let people, um, we don't want to pressure people, blah, 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 blah. 
So one, one reason that doesn't get done is either management or staff are reluctant to do it because they don't want to be perceived as being in sales, which is foolish, but true. The reason it does work is that most of us do not, in our life, clearly know what we want, right? We kind of meander towards and away from things that we want or don't want, but we need help getting there. That's why salespeople exist, right? Sometimes you need somebody just to push you over the edge a little bit to commit to something. It's the nature of how we're wired psychologically. So Shane, along those lines, really, um, people who are um, viewed as salespeople are really, in, in a negative context, they're viewed as manipulators and really the, a person who is a professional salesperson will go when they, they really want to stay objective. And mm -hmm. in doing so, they, they protect their emotional health and they work in an integrous exchange with the, with the prospective student. So in other words, it's, um, uh, it's something like this. Hi, I'm an admissions rep with the school. I don't know if you're a fit or not, but I would like to take you through a process to see if you are ready for school, school readiness quiz or what have you. And then after that process, if you're feeling really excited about the prospects, then and only then I would like to talk about my school. Do you see the difference in that? I think yeah. that really speaks to sales prejudice right there, hey Shane? Well, it does. And, you know, it does. <laughs> I always find it amusing that the lengths in which people will go to avoid being a salesperson, like even people in sales, they create crazy titles for themselves to, like, avoid the perceived stigma of that word. But that's what admissions is. It's sales. And, and, and integrous sales is both high value and, and moral, right? It's like it's a thing that's needed. And to me, that's the core issue underneath the lack of speed to call. We don't want to be perceived as salesmen because we feel yeah. it's a yucky. Yeah. And it's pathetic. It's also very different than how people recruit a traditional undergraduate. So um, I think that's also it's changed the mindset. And, you know, on well, that note... The not-for-profit, Martins, not-for-profit schools, the research institutes have recruiters and, um, you know, they're salespeople. Mm -hmm. So, they're, yeah. yeah. Anyway, continue on. Sorry. So, on that note, if, you, if we agree that you should be reaching out by phone and we agree you should be doing it quickly, the question then becomes, well, how many times should I try? Um, and so, what we did is we looked at how many times people were uh, called before, when they enrolled, um, before they were contacted the first time. And so what we found is that people who, of the people who enroll, 93% of them had been contacted by the sixth attempt. So you can see that by the sixth attempt, you're kind of plateauing. Um, and at a certain point, you can keep trying, but you're not going to get any more, um, any more progress. As a matter of fact, after, if you keep going, you find that people are actually less likely to enroll. If you look at people uh, who you keep calling, you're actually 45% less likely to enroll them if you keep going. So we say overall, oops, my bad. So we say overall is persist, don't annoy, right? Keep trying, but don't keep going to the point where you're spamming them. There was a fascinating study done by MIT in the early 1980s where they, they um, did a metadata analysis of salespeople and all of the, um, and, and it was just all different types of product services, et cetera. And they had 44 characteristics to try to determine who are the 20% the that make 80% of the money and who are the 80% that made 20% of the money trying to discern. And, and they went through all the 44 variables. And they were all the same except for one thing. The people who made 80% of the money um, the 20%, uh, they reached out an average of 4.5 times. And the people who didn't make money in sales, uh, they reached out an average of 1.56 times. So that supports what you're saying. That's, that's a good point. So then the question is emails, right? 
how many emails should you send? Well, we actually found that after you contact them, there's a value in there. And in the next slide, I'll get into putting this all together. But you know, obviously, there's the same idea with the calls, persist and annoy. And an email is actually can get you in trouble if you actually violate the Can Spam Act and keep hammering them. So well, how many times should you do it? Well, after you reach them, you actually improve your enrollment rate by sending at least one. Um, and if you do it too many times, you actually are not getting any benefit at all, right? So just get it somewhere in that optimal range, which is two to four, right? Hey, want to know if you want to come in for the tour? Hey, we've done the tour. I want to know if you want to get the education? You know, that type of thing. That's the range you want to do it in. And finally, this all comes together into an optimal range. So first, what does it look like if you're calling people in greater than a minute or not making any calls at all, and you're emailing people in more than a minute or not at all? Well, you're actually 20%, at least our clients, and again, our clients mostly serve the same ones enrollment resources do, which is serve the adult, continuing ad, the adult space. So you're 20% less likely than our average client to do an enrollment. If you call quickly but email slowly, or email quickly and call slowly, you are um, actually going to get a lift between 80% above the average or 60% above the average. But if you do both together, you're almost three times likely to enroll somebody than if you do another, than the average uh, enrollment, than our average person we have in our uh, in our databases, average inquiry. So that would play out if uh, you are um, uh, converting at five percent. Uh, you take that to fifteen percent. Let's just say, um, then you're adding ten percent um, to your your revenue. That's like millions and millions of dollars, Martin. We'd like to think so. <laughs> and again, this, this assumes that people are going to start reaching out to non-traditional students. OK. What else you got? So if you put it all together and you look at the best days to reach out to people using the same research we did before, that we put these six calls in there. We put the emails in there, and even we, another study I'm not even going into here about voicemail, the days leave a voicemail of your six calls, it comes out to this pattern. Again, not reaching out to 16-year-old kids or 17-year-old kids. This is re outreach to adults about continuing their education. Okay. So with that, let's actually go into a case study um, using enrollment resources tools, which are pretty cool. Let me pull that up. Hold on one second. So, but, but Martin, just while you're doing that, that slide you just showed that that really that blueprint on how to run an admissions department—that's like gold. It's like a magic slide on how to succeed. It's well, we like to think so. We'd like to think so, uh, and we have it built into our product. But clients, of course, are welcome to adjust it because not every school is going to be the same. But that's what we start our clients with. Yeah, so, Martin. So, Martin, this would be something that would normally be sold, that little blueprint, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what you're saying is that people can access that blueprint, and all they have to do is use your lead management system? Act now. No, yeah, absolutely. We, but they can even have this and try to put it into their own software. Absolutely. We're trying to make the world a better place. They don't have to necessarily be our clients. So, okay. I am now on the enrollment resources contact us page so we can get to your revenue finder. So tell me, Greg, what number should I put in here? Okay, Martin, so we're going to do a, uh, run a um, couple of case studies here very quickly um, and um, see about uh, financial implications on sloppy lean management. And Shane's going to um, chime in once we get the results and, and spread some some opinions there. So this is a proprietary school, and um, they have um, 12 admissions reps. OK. So they get about 1,000 inquiries a month. 80% of these come in via the internet. And 
that's yeah, a pretty common. Well, that's a pretty common number, right? Eighty percent is a pretty common number for adults. That's correct. Seventy, eighty percent, um, and uh, they have twelve admissions reps. They have seven hundred uh, enrollments a year, and the average tuition is uh, twenty-two thousand dollars. It's an associate's degree. Now, does it matter if those 700 enrollments are in two classes of 350 or seven of 100? Not for this analysis, no. This is kind of a top-level analysis, though. So. Okay, good. Okay, um, the contact rate is uh, 30%. So they don't have a, your style of uh, intelligent phone dialer, but they do work very hard at trying to get to people. The mediocre average is uh, 15 to 20%. Um, and of the inquiries that they talk to, 65% uh, say, yeah, I'll come in for an appointment, and 60% actually show up. And then of those people that go for a visit or a tour, 55% end up applying, and 80% of those are accepted, get their financial aid, and then uh, 85 percent of those who are accepted actually apply. All these people disappointing us, not showing up for tours after promising, not coming showing up at school after disappointing. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so disappointing. Okay, hit. So, okay, now we're just going to put in. I'm going to put our, a bunch of test stuff here. Yeah, that's good. And uh, ten. You have to put in. Yeah, there you go. In Gmail, we are, we set a private career college, and Greg. So let's right. get the results. I wonder, wait, oh, oh, there we go. Shane, that's a lot of money, hey? Yeah, yikes, that is a lot of money. Now, Shane, if you notice, um, in the marketing effectiveness side of things, in terms of the number of reps they have and the number of leads that they're getting, that is an optimum number, hey? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, okay, so lead gen, it's pretty much the reps are getting enough stuff. So why don't we scroll down, Martin, and have a little look here. Yeah. So they are losing about $1.2 million bucks a month. Um, Shane, why don't you take, uh, take us through this real quick? Yeah, I will. So contact rate, 38%, is poor. And so... Best practice is about 60%. Best practice is influenced by the tactics you use, so the stuff Martin had outlined on how to contact people. It's also influenced by the, the quality of your marketing. So it's not just the leads, but it's the quality of the leads you're getting. So in this example, the difference between 38% and 60%, just that alone, isolating that alone, nothing else, represents $8.4 million in lost revenue. So if we talked to the, whatever, 22% of people we're not talking to that make up the gap, that would add $8 million plus million to the school. So that's the value of fixing that problem. The book tour rate, 65%, meaning of the people we talked to, did they agree to come talk to us, or did they agree to come to the school? Did they agree to a meeting in person? 65% is, hey, that's not bad. That's pretty close to best practice. The gap between 65 and 70%, which is best practice, is $1.1 million. So that's how much money you would gain in income by closing that little 5% gap between the percentage of people that are agreeing to come in and what is... Um, been, been a proven best practice through other schools. The show rate of 60% is not bad. Uh, however, if we could get 10% more people to show, if we get that up to 70%, which is best practice, that would add $2.4 million. And the, Shane, I, yeah. well, if I could just jump in, but uh, not to be a show for Velocify, but they have a little um, thing in their uh, lead management system where if you go and text uh, somebody from your, your computer uh, to remind them to come in, um, that's a very efficient little process. We know qualitatively, qualitatively that if you text message somebody, folks, an hour or two before the actual meeting, that your show rate will go up 
you know, five to seven percent, which Shane, that looks like, and that's like a million, million and change a year for this school. Yeah, exactly. So what, what this really breaks, boils down to is, is failures to either have effective systems or failures to execute on existing systems. It's really, it's one or the other. Either we don't have a very good contact system as a result, we're only contacting 38% of people, build a better system and the contact rate will go up, or, hey, we've got a pretty good system, we're just not doing it. It's not being managed, the staff won't do it, there's some failure there. And the, the, the thing that is so interesting about admissions, like in terms of the, 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 business, um, the business of enrolling students, is that Fixing admissions problems is cheap. The, the, the cost to fix an admissions problem is not really in, you know, it's maybe there's a little bit in software, but really it's systems and training and leadership. That's what it costs to fix. Whereas marketing problems, when you have a shortage of leads, that can be extremely expensive to get more leads, right? Marketing is very expensive and to migrate from crapo leads that you're getting to better quality is hard and requires experts and uh, is a very difficult problem to solve and very expensive. But admissions it, is not it, so much. It, it creates sadness. I think, I think what's important here, because I, I, I'm not sure how many of the traditional schools think about admissions in, in, in the sense of dollars and cents, it's important to realize that if you're going to make in the case to your management team about, hey guys, we need to start looking at school at students that are not traditional, you need to look at it in the sense of if you if we're talking about survival, and I think everyone on the phone here is talking about survival, then it is dollars and cents. And this these are the type of numbers that help you make the case that we can actually we can continue as a school if we stop reaching out to 16 year olds for two years. Right. Well, Martin, here's the other thing that we haven't acknowledged yet. Our experience with um, like not-for-profits and, uh, and public sector type of schools is that there's a pretty vast swing of business practices used. Like some of them are very dialed into a funnel and, hey, they, they understand contact, book tour, show. Like they, they have a very specific sales funnel they follow. A lot of them, though, they don't have a funnel. They don't even know what a funnel is. Nothing exists before application, right? And so they, their marketing and everything about them is wired to getting applicants. Right? Absolutely. Some, some hoops that somebody has to jump through, they don't have any service, or they may have a phone number you can call and you'll wait in line like you're going to a bank to talk to somebody prior to application, but they don't give a damn about anything prior to application which is a massive mistake for them and the reason that they're getting they're losing enrollments to competitors. Yeah, and the the irony is is like you're working your your tail off to drop 20, 30, 40,000 dollars with a uh, like a for a baccalaureate um, and uh, or an associate's degree with a not-for-profit school. Like you're working super hard for the privilege giving you giving that school your money now that might work in North Korea or Cuba or you know what have you but not where there's a competitive environment and this is where not-for-profit schools are feeling the pinch because proprietary schools will often charge double yet they continue to eat the lunch of the not-for-profit schools and it really speaks to what Shane's saying and that is basically benign, benign neglect in the enrollment management funnel. It's benign or entitlement or um, living on, uh, uh, li living with the belief that how it was in the past is how it's going to be now. Like the, the fact right. is, this was outlined at the beginning of this presentation, got regulatory problems, got increased competition, we have demographics working against us, got a change in um, kind of the technological makeup of education. It's a whole online sector of education now that didn't exist 15 years ago, yeah. 10 years ago. Well, that is the one point I'll just throw in, is that there are also going to be some massive Walmart-style um, price disruption that's soon to take place. We have seen the first major one 
uh, just un unravel in the last few months with Georgia Tech, which is a very high quality, regionally accredited school, um, offering now a master's degree in um, computer science for one-seventh the price that their competitors are uh, offering. So they, they're, they're offering a, a degree for $6,000. The competitors Online. are... Yes, but here's the thing, Martin. When you have on your resume, you do not have to put online on no, but that TV. I, I, totally, I totally agree. I'm saying that you didn't mention that it was an online degree. Yeah, oh. so but in terms of employment outcomes, hey, I've got a computer science degree from Georgia Tech. Right. That looks even pretty I, good even, for me. Even though I live in the state of Washington, I can get that degree. And so Georgia no. Tech's population is now, potential students, is the world. No. If you live in Bangladesh, there, in their first six weeks, Georgia Tech received 210,000 applications, and there was this massive whooshing noise of all the prospective students just sucking out of all their competitors, basically wiping out the marketing prospects of all the competitive schools that were offering that program. And rest assured, every major program area, is there. somebody is going to come in like that, and you have to prepare for it. And I think it's important to note that on the same, you know, it's kind of going back to these practices that some traditional schools might find um, distasteful, these, uh, ap these admissions practices, the truth is, and this is not going to be discussed in great detail in this presentation, uh, Enrollment Resources and Philosophy jointly did a secret shopper of not-for-profit schools that, are, that offer competitive programs, and they are already doing a lot of these things. So if you think that your peers, your competitors, if you will, in the not-for-profit world are also not reaching out to people who inquire and not doing, um, uh, not being timely in their, in their efforts in doing so, you're wrong. Um, stay tuned for that study, but it's, um, it speaks really what the future is. Martin, yeah, well, there is, really anecdotally, Martin, there's uh, such a massive swing in the business. Like, I've never seen that in any other sector that that the the, the business practices vary so wildly within one subset. It's fascinating. Martin, I have one more case study uh, for a not-for-profit school uh, that offers uh, professional development continuing education. Let's okay. do that one, shall we? And it'll, right. say, it'll be really quick. Okay, they get a thousand inquiries um, a month. The, 70% of them come in through the internet. They have two admissions reps, kind of a call center, and they have, uh, out of that, they have 400 enrollments a year, and it's a um, $7,000 tuition, because it's like a professional certificate kind of a thing. Sure. Okay. The connect rate on those internet leads uh, is 10%. And uh, of the inquiries uh, that they um, talk to, it's a very benign process, not-for-profit process, 30%. And because they're really just getting to people who are highly, highly motivated, they have 60% show rate to the info sessions that they put on and a 60% application rate for those that show up. And they have a 90% enrollment rate and they have a 90% start rate. Okay? So, let's, you can leave that as is, Martin, but just change it from private career college. Oh, you want to go back one, Martin, please? About you? Oh, it's okay. Leave it as it is. Just, sorry, pal. Just go back to where it was. No, just leave it. It's fine. Okay. All right, there we go. So, there we go. Shane, you want to speak to this really, give it an overview? Well, this, yeah, no, if I had got this client, if they showed up in my, in my world, here would be the diagnosis that uh, they've got a, a poor contact rate, but really what is causing the hurt here is that they are over-marketing and, and they've understaffed on the sales hand. A person cannot, what, what was the input on leads, a thousand? 
Yeah. They're two drinking people, from a fire hose here, aren't they? James? Well, they are. They're drinking from a fire hose. And, and Martin, we presented some fascinating data that you guys have on, um, do you remember that presentation on leads per rep and that as a sector, even the for-profit guys are over-marketing and under-resourcing under, um, admissions departments. Right, right. We have that calculator on our site, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, and it didn't, it didn't really pull um, chatter as much as it should. We're still trying to um, generate that conversation. But, like, the, the situation in this, it's really not reflective in the 5.6 million that's uh, the ouch here, is what the conversion rates could be if they had properly staffed their continuing education, right, instead of two little call center operators to deal with this massive volume of leads, in which case all they can do is cope and really answer questions and be reactive to the, to the uh, questions and complaints of the prospects. There's no possible way for them to be proactive. And as a result, there's no opportunity at all to create any kind of a realistic process. Interesting. So well, there are a couple of green areas. There are a couple of areas where they're doing really well. Yeah. Well, it, what happens is they have a, 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 their first, with this school, the first point of contact is what we call it, is really, really weak. And then, so, and, and it's an oversight, but it, if you go to a the senior management team and go, hey, you're leaking, you know, 400 grand, 450,000 bucks um, a month in revenue, then they can start to create a business case around perhaps properly staffing or making process improvements. And even if they pick up a third of that, they pick up an extra one and a half or two million in revenue, um, they're still fantastically ahead. So I think Martin, I, I think I, it's getting to be that time, hey, Martin. It is. I just want to point one thing one thing out here, guys. If you want to do this yourselves, I recommend you do it with someone from Enrollment Resource on the phone, but you can also just put some models in yourself and play around with it. Um, if, if, but I recommend you guys get them on the phone because they can really w help walk you through a lot of these numbers you may not have. So that's me um, saying what you should do with them. <laughs> yeah, and, and Martin, to that, uh, to that end, uh, my friend, um, if anybody on the call would like to um, set up 15 minutes to go through this lost revenue finder, um, you could just uh, text uh, the following phone number, 250